Good morning. Uh, We're reading this morning from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Every summer we slow down and we meditate on the Psalms. Uh, we, we do this every summer, and we just so happen to be right at this moment at Psalm 51. Now, if you were with us last week, you remember we closed the Gospel of John late because of my sabbatical, but we closed with Peter's reinstatement, with, with Peter's journey toward repentance with God because of what he had done to Jesus. And I think it's so fitting that by God's providence, we're right here at Psalm 51, right after having looked at Peter's reinstatement and call to repentance. So I'm excited about that. You've heard me say it if you've been with us for a while. Every year I say this. The Psalms are like Galadriel's file of light that she gave to Frodo. The Psalms are a light to you in dark places when all other lights go out. Yeah, the Psalms, right? If you go into the hospital, the most common parts of the Bible you will find lying around in little, little handheld booklets are the Psalms and the Gospel of John. A light to you when all other lights go out, especially I think that's true of Psalm 51, because David was swimming in the darkness when he reached out to God and he wrote this prayer. Now you can see in the... Uh, in the title, there's a whole, there's a biological, the biographical background to Psalm 51. You know, Psalm 51, it was once called the Psalm of all Psalms. 
There was a medieval scholar who wrote a 1,200-page commentary on just this psalm. 1,200 pages. I just have two today, just two pages of notes, so don't worry about it. I can't cover it all, but hopefully this will be helpful. We'll, we'll cover some of the highlights of this amazing psalm. Now, if you don't know the background to Psalm 51, you should read, this is a good thing to do today or this week, read 2 Sam, uh, yeah, Samuel chapters 11 and 12, because as you read there and you learn about David, you learn about Bathsheba and her husband Uriah, you learn about Nathan the prophet, I think you can make the case that David broke maybe all or nearly all of the Ten Commandments during that period of time and committed probably all of the seven cardinal sins. All Ten Commandments, all seven cardinal sins committed by David in this span of his life. I may be exaggerating, but maybe not by much. Now, have you ever asked yourself um, if, if, if you are familiar with the Bible or if you know about David's story, the story of his life and his legacy, have you ever wondered how, how can a man after God's own heart commit such atrocities? Uh, could somebody get me the remote? Because uh, I just realized we're going to have to do that awkward next slide, please. Because I've got several slides I want to show you. Just hook it up to that computer and then maybe you can, yeah, that would be so helpful. That was my bad. I forgot to take it. Um, have you ever, so who, just put your hand up if, if you've heard of David described in the Bible, thank you, as the man after God's own heart. Okay, that's a lot of people, right? I don't think anybody else in the Bible has described that. I mean, think of all the people in the Bible. He's the only one who's described as a person after God's own heart. Let's see if it'll work. Is the, um, do you have that dongle and the receiver in the computer? Ah, beautiful. Uh, we're slowly warming up from sabbatical here. Okay. Yeah, so have you, ever want, have you ever asked yourself, how in the world is he considered right, for all posterity, a man after God's own heart, when he was such a wreck, like such a, I mean, he failed miserably, like go big or go home, and with his sin, he went big, publicly and privately, horrible offenses, selfishness, envy, greed, lust, adultery, murder, lying, denial, pride, idolatry, like, I, I don't mean across his life, I mean, like, in a short span, have you ever asked yourself the question, how can I call myself a Christian after what I've done or what I've thought? Have you ever said, how can they call themselves a Christian after what she's done, after what he said? How can those people call themselves Christians? Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus and you're wondering, how can God ever forgive me? How could God ever accept me for what I've done and said and even thought? Well, hopefully, we can find some answers to those important questions in Psalm 51. In our sin, we can run to a God whose grace is greater than our sins. Psalm 51 teaches us what to do with our guilt. But Psalm 51 also teaches us what to do with the desires we've had that have caused such a problem 
And I actually think what we discover in response to that struggle, dealing with our guilt and dealing with the desires that get us to uh, bad places, the Bible teaches us how to respond to that painful but really healthy process. So those three ideas are what we're going to look at today. What to do with your guilt, what to do with your desires that get you to these ugly places, um, and, and how the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, teaches us to respond to all of this. So what do you do with your guilt? When you discover, uh, like David said, when Nathan the prophet finally broke through David's colossal denial, and David said, I, I have like, no excuses. He just said, I have sinned against the Lord. You know, how, what do we do when we get to there? What do we do with our guilt? Well, the first thing I want to show in Psalm 51 is what we do with our guilt is we confess it to a God who is merciful. He sees it all, and he's listening, but he's merciful. After Nathan got through to David, David confessed his sin to God. When you look at verses 3 and 4, he says, For I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. He's talking to God. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Here's a beautiful idea of what confession is. Confession really simply is, is acknowledging your guilt before God. The guilt of having broken God's law. Either having done something wrong or not having done something right. And in David's situation here, there are a lot of wrongs done, and there are a lot of rights overlooked. Now, I want to distinguish guilt from shame. They're not the same thing. Uh, and I'm, this, I'm sure people can come up with better definitions than I can, but just for our purposes today, guilt is evidence of a committed offense. It's a fact. You know it. Other people know it. It's a fact. You've broken a law or you've broken God's law. Guilt is just the evidence of that. It's a fact. Shame, however, shame is the, the social humiliation caused by that offense or caused by an offense committed against you. A simple uh, illustration of the difference. If an officer of the law pulls me over on Route 140 for speeding, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I've, I've committed an offense. I am guilty of breaking the law and driving too fast. But if that officer of the law, when he pulls me over, it happens to be on a Sunday morning while I'm driving to church, getting ready to set up, and that officer of the law happens to be a member of our church, which is possible. They're not here today. I don't think one of them is here. Uh, so if I'm pulled over by an officer of the law who's a member of our church on my way to church, not only am I guilty, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed because of the context of the situation. Okay, so that's just a simple difference. Like you're guilty for going too fast, but you're ashamed because of the situation. Now, shame's a huge issue. It's so important. We've talked about shame a lot. I've mentioned it, and we're, I'm always going to be talking and preaching on shame because it's it's, we carry shame all the time. We'll, we're dealing with shame for the rest of our lives. I don't want to dismiss it, but I'm dealing with guilt 
right now. I want to talk about guilt. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. What is David doing? What is he addressing? He's addressing his guilt, not his shame. He's saying to God, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me against you only. Have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? You see, his guilt has overwhelmed him. But the object of his guilt is God. It's not people. He's feeling the burn with his creator. Not with the social ramifications of what he's done, as, mag- as, as, as crazy as that is. Now look, he has essentially raped, he has murdered, he has lied to others and himself. So in, in a true way, he has sinned against others and he has sinned against himself. But people are not what he fears the most. The Hebrew scholar Derek Kidner, commenting on this passage, said, Here's why David is specifically saying against you only, God, have I sinned. He says, our bodies are not our own, and our neighbors are made in God's image. You see, that covers everybody that David's offended and hurt. Bathsheba, Uriah, the nation of Israel, his royal court. But in the Bible, God is always the primary offended. Our offense always starts with the one whose law we have broken. And then it trickles down from there. It's not that David doesn't care about Bathsheba or Uriah or the nation which he is bound to serve as king. He does. But he cares most about how he has brought guilt against his God. David is grieved that he has grieved God. That's why he is being so specific and particular talking to God in confession. He is grieved that he has grieved his God. And that's the fundamental difference between uh, what the Apostle Paul called godly sorrow as opposed to worldly sorrow or, or godly grief instead of worldly grief. So he said this to the church in Corinth in the first century. He was telling them that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. See, there's no shame in there. Without regret. Whereas worldly grief, Paul said, worldly grief produces death. So, here's the difference. Godly grief is, um, this is godly grief. I am broken because I have sinned and I cannot bear the guilt of it. This is worldly grief. I am broken because I've been caught and I cannot bear the shame of it. And now we see worldly grief all the time. Read the newspaper, get on YouTube, read Twitter if you must. We see worldly grief all the time in our politicians and celebrities. But the Psalms are oozing with godly grief. They ooze with godly grief. It confesses guilt to a God of mercy. And this is what we see in David. If you want to know what godly grief, what godly sorrow is, look at Psalm 51. And and it's one of the Psalms that I have committed to memory because you know what I do more than anything else? I sin. You sin more than anything else. What did David say? 
He said, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not blaming his mom or his dad for anything. There wasn't any scandalous thing happening during his conception. He's saying that sin, that a rebellious heart against my creator is the air that I breathe. It's the water I swim in. It's by nature who I am. And so if you want to memorize any portions of any psalm, Psalm 51 is a great one to consider. Remember, a light to you when all other lights go out. Okay, so um, what do we do with our guilt? We confess it to a God who is merciful. Then what? What comes after confessing your guilt? Well, we ask God to change our desires. Now look, this, not a, this is not a mathematical equation or a, this is not like a baking recipe, okay? Think in general. This is a relationship. Okay, uh, so, so yeah, you confess your guilt, but you also ask God to change your desires. And, and then you participate as those desires change. That's what the Bible calls repentance, a new way of thinking, a new way of living. You ask God to change your desires, and then you participate in repentance as those desires led by God's spirit change in you. What did David do with that misdirected, unchecked mess of desires? He had been king for a long time. And like Mel Brooks said in a bad way, it's good to be king. And David learned that. Years of being a king, misdirected desires, unchecked desires, causing an absolute mess, and what does he do? He says, and I, and I think this is the heart of the psalm, create in me, verses 10 through 12, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. If you were in any kind of Christian fellowship in the 1990s and you didn't know what to sing but you felt really bad, you sang those words. But it comes from Scripture. Um, our behavior, our habits, and the desires that fuel those habits and behaviors, none of that can change until our hearts do. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. That's what he knows he needs. The evidence of a heart change, listen to this, the evidence of a heart change is movement toward God. Repairing the damages of what he had done, making restitution for the wrongs we commit and the things we break and the laws we trespass, peacemaking in those tense relationships in which we have sinned and hurt others, all of that is important. All of that is important. But David wants more than anything to be restored to God. That's what he wants the most. That's what David wants first. Create in me a clean heart. Father God, let's get things right between us. Have you, have you ever experienced, Becky and I experienced this, and, and I even experienced this with my own children. You have an argument in the beginning of the day before you leave the house for the day. You have a hurtful argument, right? Not just a debate or a disagreement, but words are exchanged, ideas, accusations, you know, general statements, you know, unfair qualifications and descriptions of the other person. 
take place before you leave the house for the day. And, and then what happens? That can be a pretty, for me, that's a pretty miserable day. You're answering emails, and in the back of your mind is this cloud of relational tension between you and this person you love. Emails, meetings, maybe I've met with you, and in the back, <laughs> in a coffee shop or in my office, and in the back of my mind, there's this cloud of tension hanging because I have hurt somebody I love or they've hurt me and we haven't made things right yet. And so that's a really difficult day, right? And, and you're, you're kind of in agony all day with, with right? because that, that, that broken relationship, it clouds everything, doesn't it? it? It's just a mist settles over every aspect of your day until you can make things right. David is in agony. He is in agony because he feels distant to his God because of what he has done. That's why he's pleading, don't cast me away from your presence, O oh Lord. Don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Maybe he was thinking about Saul, the king before him. Literally, God's spirit left Saul because of what Saul had done. He's in agony, and in his agony, he's moving towards God, asking that the relationship be restored. And what's interesting is he asks, I mean, he asks for many things, but two I want to just briefly highlight. He asks, he asks for the joy he once had with God. Joy. Restore the joy of my salvation. But another more curious thing that I've never really looked at before, but really surprised me this week, and I discovered it this week, he also asks for a willing spirit. And the word willing there, in the original language, it meant to be eager about something, to be enthusiastic about something. So he's asking for his joy to be restored with God, and he's asking for a spirit towards God that is eager and enthusiastic. You see that? How do you kill your old desires? You replace them with new ones. You get excited about other things. You become enthusiastic, not about all the perks of being a king or fill in the blank in our own situation. David's saying, enough, like I've been a king all this time. The things that bring me joy, like how did I get here? The monster I've become. And he's saying, God, give me an enthusiasm for you. Replace my old desires with new ones. Right? And, and, and really, that's, that's what, and actually, again, Derek Kidner, he says that kind of a spirit is God's own antidote to the things that tempt us. That's God's antidote to temptation and urges. It, it's, it, it's, it's a joy for him that replaces our, our codependency on the things of this world. So cultivate a life where you cannot bear the agony of feeling distant from God. If you're in the women's community group, you know this, that, that Paige Brown likes to say, David's legacy is his repentance. That's the reason he's called the man after God's heart. Not because he was more moral or more well-behaved. He wasn't... Saul was better behaved than David. Just read it. But God wasn't with Saul. Why was God with David? David wasn't kinder or braver or more woke than anybody else. David knew how to repent. 
David, in his guilt, in his heart, moved towards God. That's his legacy. That's what it means to be a person after God's heart, is you cannot bear the agony of feeling distant from him. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. We have to get beneath the surface behavior when we try to fix what we've broken. We've got to get past the surface activities and habits and, and, and masks that we wear when we try to fix what we've broken, when we try to repair in an outward way the damage that we've done. We've got to get beneath the surface behavior to what God really desires, what he desires the most. It's more than religion. Religion's important, but it's more than religion, David says. Look at verses 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. And then he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God most desires a heart that runs to him when you know you've sinned. That's the beauty of Jesus' most famous parable, the prodigal son. God is a father in heaven who longs for us to run to him while we are in sin, while we know that we have sinned and are not worthy of his presence. You know, all of our efforts to sober up and to get clean and, and, and you know, to, to grow up and to get off of the internet, all of our best efforts don't actually bring him joy unless, unless our hearts are running to him in the process. Our corrective behaviors and habits and 12-step programs mean nothing to him unless we are running to him in the process, boldly expecting for him to forgive us. Bold hope. We're in sin, we know we've sinned, but we have this bold hope that he will, these are future tenses, he will forgive us. That's why the whole prayer starts in verse one with, have mercy on me, O God. What? Because I know I've messed up. Have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David knows that the success of his repentance is not based on his desire to repent, but on the promises of God to always love him. God's mercy is great, and his love is irrevocable. That's why David runs to him in bold hope. Forgive me. I've royally screwed up, pun intended. Getting back to your Bible, going back to church, coming back to your community group more often, meeting that person for breakfast that you haven't seen in several months because you're kind of ashamed and you feel awkward, um, serving, volunteering with new fervor. Hey, we're all grateful for that. But, but they're outward things. It's not the heart. Right? You may, all of that could just be masking the fact that your heart is avoiding God. And then what happens there, when we get busy in our religion and when we look good in our morality, we get ourselves 
straight, in order, organized, well-behaved, calmed down, sobered up, whatever, read up. But our hearts are still far from God inside. Then things like shame take over. Like with Peter, burying that shame. Things like pride take over, you know, like Paul, Saul, I should say, Saul in the New Testament, thinking he was doing great things for God while he was murdering people and imprisoning people and persecuting Jesus. Things like self-hate take over when we're doing good religion, but our hearts are far from God. We keep accusing ourselves. We listen to those, those voices telling us we're no good. And we don't deserve to be truly known because if people truly knew us, they wouldn't want to be around us. That's what takes over when our hearts are far from God, even though our religion looks busy. Self-righteousness takes over when our hearts are far from God, but our religion looks good. And that's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. You look great, but you're whitewashed tombs. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me, right? The prophet Isaiah said. Uh, so moral busyness right? It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't change the fact that you may have a heart of stone that's running away from God. It's calcified in all of that shame and pride and self-hate and self-righteousness that you won't address because you're running from God. Moral busyness can still distract you from God, what God wants most. It's you. He wants you the most. Not your sacrifices. He wants you the most. And, and I say that hesitantly as the pastor of a young church because we need lots of volunteers. <laughs> but it's more important to God that your heart is right with him than that you volunteer for our church. I would rather have a lot of people whose hearts are right with God than a ton of help moving equipment around every Sunday morning. What do we do in response to all of this? We talked about um, confessing our guilt to a God who is merciful. We've talked about asking that merciful God to change our desires, replace them with his joy and with, with an enthusiasm for him, running to him in our guilt, in our sin. Well, what do we do in response to that struggle? The gospel, the good news of Christianity teaches us how to respond to our guilt and to that request to have new desires, changed hearts, repentance. It's joy. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. It's to rejoice in a grace that is greater than our sin, like the old hymn says. The gospel teaches us to rejoice in God's grace that outmatches our greatest Sins. And you don't have to sin and fail royally like David did. You don't literally need to throw a family into conflict and despair and a nation down the drain. You can just hurt one person in your life. You can just make one horrible, horrible, wicked decision that nobody knows about. But the grace of God outmatches it all. From king to pauper, the grace of God is greater than all of our sins. 
Romans 5 teaches us. We read this earlier. Paul is talking about we have been justified through the blood of Jesus Christ. That means legally we're not guilty anymore. We're innocent as though we had never committed the crime. He's saying that because we've been justified, we're reconciled to God. And he goes further. It's not just information. He does something with it. He says, more than that, we also rejoice. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen. We rejoice. That's the response to knowing that no matter how great our sins are, God's grace abounds all the more. Because Jesus, the son of David, born in Bethlehem, the city of David, Jesus, the great Messiah, the true son of David, the better David, who had a heart of gold. Man, Neil Young, he missed one person. Jesus had a heart of gold. Jesus never strayed from the Father throughout his earthly life. And you know, even though David's prayer was answered, the cast me not away from your presence, even though God did answer David's prayer, as Jesus, David's son, groaned on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, the innocent son of David? His prayer was not answered. And he was rejected and despised on the cross. And so we run to a God in our grief and in our guilt with confidence, with bold confidence, knowing he won't cast us away. Because Jesus took our sins to the cross and in that moment was rejected. In that moment was not answered. In that moment was denied. God will never, if you belong to Jesus Christ, God will never take his Holy Spirit from you. It is impossible. It is a benefit to the gospel of grace that David did not understand and only looked forward to in faith. And so David, in fear, desperately did not want the Spirit of God to leave him. But in faith, in bold confidence, we have more reason than David did to go to God in our sin because his Spirit cannot be taken away from us because our sin is atoned for. That very sin and its guilt was washed white by the blood of Jesus Christ. And what did David say? Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. What David believed but did not fully comprehend, we know, we look back on. A risen Savior who died in our place. And guess what? This is why we can rejoice with Paul. The cloud of relational tension between you and your creator has dissipated like a mist forever. Isaiah the prophet, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And so we rejoice not only with Paul and David, we rejoice with Isaiah. We say, sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout. O depths of the earth, break forth into singing. O mountains, O forest and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed us. Amen? And he will be glorified in us. Amen? If you're not a Christian, 
Christians don't evangelize. We don't, we don't proselytize and tell you about our faith because we're arrogant. We tell you about our faith because we are joyful. We don't believe we're better than anybody else. We believe we're forgiven. We have the joy of being forgiven and being reconciled. Don't you want to be too? And if your experience from religion as a child or for most of your life has been about guilt, right? how many people, right, like, oh, I, you know, I grew up in a blankety blank church and it's all about guilt. I'm all about guilt, right? Um, listen, if, if, if what your church experience has taught you is guilt, uh, you've only heard, you were only listening to half the story. Or, at least I'll give you the benefit of the doubt and put it on them. They were only telling you half of the story. It's true. You're guilty. But it's also true that you're forgiven. It's also true that God is merciful. It's also true that his grace is greater than all our sins. In our sin, we run. We run to a God whose grace is greater than our sins. And Psalm 51 is proof of it. It's proof that God wants to hear the sorrowful apologies of those who know they've messed up, who have hurt others, and who have grieved his spirit. Are you grieved that you have grieved God's spirit? Good. Good. You are halfway there. Now embrace his grace. Embrace his mercy. And cultivate a Christian life where you cannot bear to be separated from him in your heart uh, because there's hope for every sinner in the presence of a merciful God. Let's pray. Father, we, we recognize having seen Psalm 51 in light of Romans chapter 5, it is not you who desert us. It is we who desert you. It is we who feel afar off or numb or nothing. And so we ask, each of us, each of us, we ask that you would restore unto us the joy of your salvation and give us an enthusiastic spirit to run back to you, to be called your daughters and sons. We sing to you the joy of your salvation. Amen.